Welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. Today, we're going to talk about emotional hot buttons and our thermostat when it comes to our emotional regulation system. I've got a very special guest. We've gotten to spend some time together in Chicago. We ran an event in the GoBundance community in October of 2023. Very, very special event. And the guest today, Dave, Dave Vanderlaan, was a part of that event. Now, he was also speaking at that event because he is a total rock star. But Dave has a really special way of, of thinking critically before he speaks. And, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. But what's important to note is that Dave has two sides of his personality in that he's got a creative side. He's also got a very analytical side. And for those of you out here that are learning to tap into both, this episode might help you with the way that you can lean into your creative side and, and where to go with that. And you can learn some emotional regulation. Uh, his context was about kids and he's got a lot to offer. So this conversation is with, again, Dave Vanderlaan. He's a recovering attorney, uh, self-proclaimed recovering attorney, a retired public servant, and a washed-up wedding singer. I, I think he's still got some more in the tank when it comes to wedding singing. In early 22, he left litigation at a major international law firm, which I'm, I'm really proud to say has made him much more happy, to become the chief operating officer of Nourish House Calls, the functional medicine practice where his wife, Joya, founded it in 2018. Dave and Joya live in suburban Chicagoland, and they have three kids, Sophie, Jude, and Emily. And in the pursuit of Dave's transition and change, he shares the story of the struggle points, the ups and downs, and like any good recovering attorney, can play both sides of the fence. You're going to love this episode, and I'm so excited to welcome Dave to the show. All right, Dave, you are here. You're live. You're mic'd up. Uh, it's Monday. Mondays are different for you now. I want to start with just that kind of observation. What What are Mondays in your world like post-transition? Oh, Aaron, <laughs> it is so good to be here with you. It is so good to be recording a podcast and talking to somebody I enjoy instead of being five hours into billing 10 hours a day uh, at, at a law firm, whether at a desk in my house, as uh, often happened during and post-COVID, or uh, in a sort of glass-walled office down in downtown Chicago, as I did for, for a number of years before that. So Mondays are really different. Now, I get my kids off to school, which I largely did when I was practicing law, but I would be right out the door behind them. The real difference, and especially in the last few months, is Mondays, Joy and I sit down for about an hour and a half, and we go through the business. And nice. we, well, first of all, we, we sit down, and we're both uh, people of Christian faith, read the Bible together, we pray together. That's pretty much every morning after we get the kids off to school. And then we start our level 10 meetings. We're self-implementing EOS. We did that kind of in Q4 of last year. And every week we go through that rhythm and talk about wins in the business and talk about you know our metrics for the week and what our to-do list has been and will be. And that really sets me up very well to be productive in this business where I'm not selling my time like I was as a lawyer. It was kind of easier to know what to do because I was tracking my time in mm -hmm. six-minute increments and taking direction from 
partners and clients and, and people like that. Now there are any number of things I could do to move the business forward. And so having that focus at the beginning of Monday really helps. And through the rest of the day, just kind of depends on what's on that list and what needs to be done around the house. I've done grocery shopping today. I dropped off my daughter's skating gear at a friend's house because she's going over there to skate on their backyard pond after school today. So I'm a little bit more of the flex parent, which has been an adjustment, but largely a good one. Uh, but yeah, my Mondays are, are very different, much more purposeful and much more pleasant than they than they had been. Those sound like great Mondays. They really are. What, I'm, I'm curious because in transition, I think there's a, there's a language and a rhetoric where people are like, the grass, you know, don't go. The grass isn't greener on the other side. And I have my own opinion, but I'd love to hear yours. What's the grass like after having left a job where you're clocking time and tracking minutes to now you're at your own discretion and there's some openness that I wanted to get into, but now it's it's yours. The time is yours. Some of the grass is greener. <laughs> the grass is different on the other side. Nicely said. It's, it's not the same field. And so you can look at particular patches of that field and find some really green grass. And you can look at some patches of that field and find grass that's absolutely brown or a little bit less green than the grass was back in the field where you were. And you can choose to focus on that and be really miserable about the transition, or you can go look at the really greener grass and feel good about it. So for me, there's some really green grass about buying back my own time mm. and working in a business that feels far more purposeful, feels far more directly helpful, where I'm not required to take a side of an argument or a case, whether I think it's the right one or not, yep. which was something that really bothered me when I was practicing law. It's green grass largely to spend a lot more time with my children, because as I alluded to when we were talking about Mondays, there would be a lot of times on a normal day, I'd leave the house around seven, I'd get home around seven. That does not leave a lot of time for parenting young children. Now I'm seeing them off and I'm the one who's home when they get off the bus. And I really value that. And it's still child rearing. And two of my three kids have some, some special needs, some neuroatypicalities. And so not all of that grass is green, yeah. right? It, it is challenging to, to raise children and to be the more flexible parent. So if I chose to focus on that, and in some of my less wise moments, I do, that grass can look awfully brown. So mm. it, it really depends on what you choose to focus on, on either side of the transition, I think. That's a beautiful statement. I, I can appreciate the rawness and the, the reality there. I, I think the, the ability to control your time or the, the option to select can also come with a tremendous amount of options. And all of a sudden, options lead to options, and this like exponential equation starts to erupt, and, and then you're like fragmented in a lot of different directions. And it's, it's something that I, I've struggled with, where I have so many ideas. Right, it, this is the comment that I hear, and I, I think is is pretty prevalent in the space. I have so many ideas, and I want to do all these things, but I I either choose too much to take on at once, or you know, I, I have so many ideas that I don't do any of them. If if you transitioned from something that 
really tugged at your soul, which is is something I've I've heard you speak on and and share about. To now, you have the opportunity to help someone. Is is there a different fulfillment that at least pulls you forward? Like what what's the the thing that drives you in this new pursuit of nourish? There's definitely a, a different level of fulfillment, and that provides a great drive. Part of that fulfillment is helping people generally, right? This is a some Nourish House Calls this is a functional medicine practice. My wife, Joya, started that in 2018, and almost exactly two years ago, I left the law firm to, to become her second-in-command and help grow the business. So part of it is helping patients and helping the world get healthier. Part of it is I really do think my wife is a beautiful genius woman. She's incredibly good at what she does. And the opportunity I have to support her and get her genius out into the world and see her flourish, that's that's a great driver for me too. Uh, your point about optionality is a really, really important one. And a, a very wise coach uh, once I heard talk about focus as directional efficiency, and that's that's something that I I lacked when I left the law firm. I thought that I was going to help with nourish some of the time and buy a bunch of real estate. I had already owned a, a little bit, but I thought I was going to become a real estate mogul also and have some other side hustles. I was looking at. You know, my, my son's a, a relatively high-level basketball player. He's 10, so who knows where that's going to go. But he's a better athlete than I ever was. Uh, and I noticed a lack of court space. Oh, I'll, I'll build a basketball gym. And I'll build a business training kids in basketball around that. So my attention was diffuse. I was not directionally efficient. And I don't think it did very much good for any of those projects. So in the last handful of months, I've I've come around to the idea of really going all in on Nourish and as I've made that choice, I've found those areas of focus, those areas of fulfillment, all the more fulfilling, which creates a, a virtuous cycle, right? Where I'm yeah. now even more driven to, to keep pouring into the business like that. Man, that's so good. Oh, I appreciate the, the compliment. That means a lot. You know, it's, it, it's really special to, to kind of meet you where you are in the journey to, to celebrate two years is, I think, really awesome. So congratulations. Thank you. That that alone is is progressive, and I I know that in the the walk of entrepreneurship, my experience has been in that front facing number one seat, and part of the challenges that I've faced is making sure that my number two felt really valued, that. They are expressive and have liberties to make choices and empowered and all that. Has that been hard to adjust to? Has that been difficult to kind of surrender to in some ways? So Joy and I have very complementary skill sets. She is a scientist. She is a healthcare provider. Those are not skills I have. And so I would never think to try to usurp her medical judgment or try to give patient care or anything like that. It it just would never occur to me to do that. And if I did, the business and I would fail spectacularly. On the other hand, Joya's intellectual interest is 
a few inches wide and many miles deep. She cares about Jesus, her family, and how the human body works, and not a whole lot else. Whereas I am more of a generalist, and and that sort of general understanding leads me to care about things like how to structure a business and Mm -hmm. marketing and all those sorts of things that Joya doesn't have time for and and might not be quite so good at, although she's a very smart woman, she could probably be very good at it if it was a thing she chose to care about. So we tend to have very discrete areas of responsibility, which I think helps. With that said, there's the challenge of being business partners and still finding time to be romantic partners. Yes. And as we get busy in business, we're in a particularly busy season right now. We were talking before the recording. We're in the middle of a bunch of of pretty big projects. It can be easy to squeeze out time for romance, time for intimacy, because everything feels like a business meeting. And and we we have been rather intentional about that and could stand to be more so. Uh, thankfully, we were able to go on a date over the weekend and only talked about business for 30% of the time, which, <laughs> which is a nice thing. Um, the, other, the other area where I think it's been a challenge for me that Joya didn't even realize is this is a business she started. She is the face of the business. She is the lead practitioner. And I had held myself back from taking a visionary role, which is really a, a big piece of what I'm doing for the business because I'm the guy who has the grand vision. I'm the guy who sees where we can be in three and five and 10 years. Mm. But I was handcuffing myself a little bit because there was a, a subconscious part of me that said, no, this is Joy's business. Don't make it your business. You can't possibly make it your, you can't be the visionary because it's not your business. And we were actually at an event where where you were coaching is a, a GoBundance Emerge event. And I finally made this explicit to myself. And Joy and I were both there and I said this to her and her response was, well, have I ever made you feel that way? Wow. No, of course she hadn't. Amazing. She hadn't. And that gave me wings. It gave me freedom to embrace this visionary role. And I think that's only going to do good things for the company and my emotional health in the in the months and years to come. I think I remember that moment because you you got up and shared a little bit about it after that conversation. I don't I don't remember what the specific prompt was, but I, I do remember you sharing. If if that moment came with a set of wings, uh we'll call it your caterpillar to butterfly moment, right? You, you grow you sprout these wings and now you're starting to fly. That that transition prompts a whole new level of belief systems and challenges and fears, right? It, it's almost one of those moments where we we get what we're asking for, which sounds like there was some um, hesitation or intrepidation about like, hey, I want to make this statement, but then then you get it, and now it's just a punctuation mark at the end of a chapter and the first word in the next page. So what what has that transition been like? And and has it been as glorious as it sounds after a statement like, I got my wings? I'm going to give you a very lawyerly answer. <laughs> yes. <Yeah>. It depends. 
It depends on what you look at, because there have been some ways in which it's been absolutely glorious, because I love the creativity that comes with that. I love thinking big and then planning to make big happen. But you're right, that does come with fear, because now I'm looking at growing this business in some ways literally 10x over the next handful of years, and the fear is, who am I to do that? Who are we to do that? Why should we be offering services that people with, you know, a hundred times our social following and marketing budgets beyond our comprehension are are offering to? How can we possibly compete with them? Mm. And I think those fears are largely irrational, but that thought process is necessary because. You do need to come up with a plan to deal with those things, right? There's, you know, there's a, the SWOT analysis is is real, and you have to look at the the threats and the weaknesses as much as you look at the the strengths and the opportunities. Okay, okay. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, no. I I I made it sound as though I was not done with the thought, and then it occurred <laughs> to me I did not have anything else to add. I like that. Uh, you know, one one thing that occurs to me, Dave, is like a, as you share this. What I have found about you and Joya, uh, and, and we only got, you know, a limited time together, but it, it was still significant is the level of care that you have. And what I am particularly intrigued by is as, as you focus on nourish and have gotten focused and have really put all your, your eggs in the basket, how often you feel like you get like you like you're bumping into a fear that creates a pause when you go for something big like a 10x and and i guess to give more context to that what i have found is as i approach an idea that feels really good that feels like it could accelerate us the the larger belief structure and the language that i use in the back of my mind is not nearly as positive as the front of my mind. And and there's something to be said for like like understanding risk and doing the SWOT analysis and and then there's something about courage and being brave and like you got to you got to do it, right? We we know we got to do it as entrepreneurs because if you don't you're you're sort of handcuffing yourself to use that word again mm-hmm. to something static. But how, how are you currently navigating those little undermining beliefs and the like sentences we tell ourselves when we have a good idea and it might come with risk, but we still know that we got to do it. Who oh boy, that's a big question. It is. What first came to mind and you'll think maybe Dave's filibustering because he doesn't have a good answer to the question and you wouldn't be entirely wrong. When you talk about what's in the back of your mind and what's in the front of your mind, I was thinking, well, boy, what's in the front of my, what's in the front of your mind is what comes out of your mouth a lot of the times, right? It's what comes out of your mouth when you're being interviewed on a podcast. Uh, I think the way I deal with it depends on the day. I think when I am dealing with it in a less healthy and less productive way, I do everything I can to squelch what's in the back of my mind Mm. and just ignore it and push it away and push it down and just 
keep keep grinding away at the task, right? I've got a plan. I know how to execute it. So I'm just going to go, go, go. And that, that can work for a time. But the voices don't necessarily go away. The back of your mind still exists. And I think when I am being healthier about it, I start to have a conversation with those and I make I, I make them explicit. I make them clear. This is one of the real upsides about being business partners with your spouse is we have that extra level of, of intimacy. I'm blessed to have a very good marriage. So if that occurs to me or if it occurs to Joya, because it does too, we have our spouse to talk. We have our spouse to discuss that with. That's cool. And I think that that can that can make a big difference. And this is a good reminder for me to go through door number two more often than beating my head against door number one. How often do you get stuck in like you? You had a technical job, probably a very technical job in in some regards. Naturally, a high degree of emotional intelligence is needed. That sounds like it was pulling on your heartstrings. That com- particular piece. That that highly technical job can also reinforce a pattern of like follow the rules, stay in the box, color by number, like don't go out of bounds. And now now you're like living in an out of bounds environment. Is is that part of like that narrative that chatter that happens? Is you know play play by a safer rule set or or what are the rules? How do you find yourself navigating the the differences in structure versus no structure? I think it does play a part. Part of it is structure and part of it is lawyers are trained to be risk averse. We are trained to look for the worst case scenario <laughs> and do everything we can to protect against it. And that's, I, so I was a litigator. Uh, and so we often see the worst case scenario because nobody meets their litigator on a good day in their life. Yeah. Right. Ouch. You know, they're, they're, in trouble with the government or they've been sued or they have to sue somebody. It's, it's, it's not a pleasant experience for many clients mm. and even a transactional lawyer. A lot of negotiating a contract is trying to protect your client from reasonable or even seemingly unreasonable downside. You're looking for any crack that you can, that you can try to fill. So that does breed into a well-trained lawyer, a really high degree of risk aversion. So now we move to a startup business in an emerging area of healthcare (laughs) where we are largely, we're not making up the rules as we go along as far as how to practice, but Joya is doing some some cutting edge medicine, and so she's following new research and offering therapies and ideas and tests that traditional sort of conventional medical providers probably won't offer for another seven years because that's often how long it takes mm. new research to work its way into medical training, uh, you know, medical school training that is. And on the business side. We're flying by the seat of our pants. 
we can do what we want. We can charge what we think the market will bear. And so there, there isn't a box to color within. We're kind of making up the box as we go, which is daunting in some ways for a man who has been largely a rule follower for most of his life and spent a decade in a very risk-averse profession. But I am also a musician by training and temperament that's got my bachelor's degree in vocal performance. And so creativity is not foreign to me. And while there is some creativity in crafting a legal argument, this is real blank canvas stuff we're working with right now. And I'm, I'm really enjoying that sort of right brain activation that I didn't get quite so much when I was practicing law. Oh boy. This, this opened up a really cool can of worms. I'm really excited about this. Right on. The, the idea of left brain, right brain fascinates me. Uh, culturally, I think we have a narrative that is you are one or the other. Mm. And that, that presupposes why people in school are kind of pushed to different avenues, uh, which drives me bananas. <laughs> uh, if you, if you got, uh, is your oldest 10? No, my oldest is 12 and then I have 10 year old boy, girl twins. Okay. So they're in a really like sweet spot right before middle school where a lot of that push starts to happen. Uh, and I've noticed that even as adults, we tend to say like, I am creative or I'm not creative. And I, that just blows my mind, right? That, that we would just sequester a part of our brain and leave it dormant. Uh, how do you take your music, your art, and drag it into your science? It depends on what I'm doing. Here we go with it depends again. <laughs> But there's hardly any area of life where there is no creativity involved, especially as we all get a little more ad advanced in our careers and we get a little more responsibility. So if you have, if you ever have anyone working for you, there is so much creativity in managing personalities. You talked about making your number two feel valued and appreciated and part of the team there's no rote playbook for that because even if you're working with the same person for years they're not going to respond to the same thing mm. all the time for that it, it, let alone working with a team or working with a succession of people so even just managing people there's creativity but and in executing your job it's hard to think of a prof in, in, of any profession where there's zero creativity involved. So there's always an opportunity to bring that in. So I, I really appreciate what you're saying that people are given a sorting hat in middle school. It's like, you are a creative, you will go into the arts, you are deeply uncreative and you're good with numbers, therefore you will be an accountant as though there's no creativity available for someone making tax strategy or something like that. Right. Yeah, like 
engineering was that thing for me. People were like, go be an engineer. Uh, yeah. And what, what is the arts anyway? In, in, in just like the way that we describe it, it's as if someone just walks into a playwright studio and all of a sudden that's just their career path versus in my mind, creativity being a pursuit that hybridizes two things that are unlike. Uh, you've essentially hybridized the understanding of law, of, of, of risk, and at a core level, if, if I had to really deduce law down to a fundamental skill, it would be communication. And taking that into Nourish, where you're, you're building a, an environment where someone can thrive physically, mentally, and emotionally. Yeah, I think I think all of that's fair. I think there is an art to combining one's own skill sets, right? And and to combining ideas. The the very notion of ideation really comes down to taking two things that to many people would seem unrelated and combining them in a way that's new or a way that seems new to you or a way that maybe someone's just never heard before and you can and you can communicate it differently so there's there's create there's creativity involved in thinking yes one thing i i want to layer onto this too because i i really agree with you that art as avocation is immensely important for darn near everybody i was a professional musician for half a decade or so it was part time i was doing other things but i was it was largely a wedding band gig, but I was doing 75 to 90 gigs a year wow. between 2006 and 2010. Yeah, a lot of, lot of drunk rides, Aaron. Just so, <laughs> so many drunk rides. <laughs> yeah, you're probably, probably non-podcast stories, <laughs> but I got, I got a, a few that are, that are killer. But what I learned from that, and it's, it's almost the inverse of what we're talking about, that was a dream job for me in some ways because I was getting paid to sing. And when I went to college, that's all I wanted. I just wanted to make a living with my voice. And what I learned doing that was that any job you have, and I would, I would even extend this to, to any business you have, there are going to be some days when it just feels like a job. When it feels, there are things you have to do in any endeavor that feel at least a little bit sluggish. And and there's there is a kernel of truth to the notion that if you do something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. But to take that as absolute truth, I think is gonna end up disappointing people. Because you have to understand that they're just gonna there are always gonna be some things you have to execute that are not your favorite thing to do or aren't your favorite thing to do that day. Well, I wasn't always excited to to sing sexy back at a wedding. <laughs> it was fun to do, but you know, when it's you know, when it's your 75th performance, it gets a, it can get a little stale. <laughs> so bringing arts into your work, having art as avocation to light up your creativity so that you can bring that creativity into the things you're doing, I think is, is hugely valuable. And understanding that if you are blessed to be any sort of professional artist, you've got to bring some left brain business sense and kind of grit to that so that you can 
work through the things that feel like work and then enjoy the the immense creativity that comes with with that sort of profession i think that's all worth keeping in mind it's a big statement i really really appreciate that the, the three things i pulled uh art is advocation is important for everybody don't take a kernel of truth and make it an absolute and artists need a left brain business sense just as much as anyone else where do let's paint a picture of where nourish is and where you see it going. I think that'd be really helpful. And then let's see if we can find where you may be stuck and we'll dig a little bit and see where it, where it takes us. Sure. Right now, Nourish has a, has a membership model. So if someone wants kind of down the fairway functional medicine services, so to see Joya as a provider, to get medical advice, to get subscriptions, whether that's for traditional medications or peptides or something like that. They need to, they need to be a member. We have about 70 members right now. About 14 months ago, we launched this, this membership program. I think we'll something like double that over the course of the next year, maybe more. We are from a revenue standpoint, about a $400,000 a year in, in 2023. I think we'll more than double that this year. Love that. The, the big picture of where we're going, and part of this is, is leveling up and raising our standards. We are, are sunsetting our lowest tier membership. We're actually rolling out a website. Lord willing, it will be live on the internet by the time this podcast publishes. Uh, that will no longer advertise our, our lowest tier membership. That was people could pay monthly, but it ended up being fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars a year, depending on on how they paid. We are going to be introducing a, a what we call an executive longevity blueprint, where it is a far more of a white glove, high touch service with testing included with therapeutics included that we don't include in other memberships. And that's going to be a $15,000 product service. The idea being work with some fewer people, but really provide them with remarkable service, provide them with high level access to Joya. Again, talking about getting, getting her genius out into the world and that level of revenue I think in the early part of this year will allow us to hire another nurse practitioner who can backfill and take some of the other members that we have and the other members that come on in the, in our lower ticket memberships and that will free up Joya's time to service the the highest tier memberships and also do more working on the business as opposed to in the business. And even more than that, she's quite busy and, and kind of on the edge of, of getting burned out right now. Allow her to take time and be the sort of mother that she wants to be, to stop working many days when the kids are home from school, to, as she said the other day, I just want to bake some banana bread, to let her <laughs> bake some banana bread Those already. bananas keep going bad. <laughs> Right. And they get so brown and that's the time to bake banana bread. And you got like a 48 hour window uh, and her banana bread rocks. I'm, I'm all for her, her baking more banana bread. And over time, and, and that's going to, we, we talked about virtuous circles. 
buying back some of Joya's time by by doing that strategic hiring will allow us to bring more people into the highest level memberships, which creates more revenue, which allows us to advertise more, which brings more people on. Where I think we're going over the next, call it seven, eight, ten years, is including Joya, five to seven nurse practitioners, maybe an MD in there, but most likely nurse practitioners. And then a handful of of registered nurses who would do most of the IVs that we provide. Whether all of those people are hired in Illinois or whether they're hired in other states, I'm I'm not entirely sure. I think we would, certainly would start here in Illinois. But that would by the time we get there, we are generating a great deal of revenue for our family. We're able to put a lot of that into passive investments and investing that way allows me to stay focused on the business, which which I'm really enjoying. And it also just helps. You know, at that point, we have hundreds upon hundreds of members, and the notion of taking hundreds of people a year and really optimizing their health in a way that they wouldn't get optimized by going to their traditional primary care provider, that that lights me up. I'm really, really excited about that. I love that vision. One of the, one of the, one of the thing about that vision is, I talked a little bit about Illinois or other states. We're in the process of of expanding there right now. So Joya is licensed in Illinois, Florida, New Hampshire, and Vermont, which is a very unusual collection of states, but it's come about through partnerships and, and other opportunities, including Joya got licensed in Vermont so that she can do the IVs uh, in, in the event there that's coming up next week at the time of this recording. We're working on getting her licensed now in Washington, Oregon, California, Arizona, Texas, and Pennsylvania. And when that's done, that's going to open up whole new worlds for the people that we can help, people that could come into our universe and you know, really just get healthier through all the, all the good, advice, uh, good advice, easy for you to pronounce, that, uh, that Joy can give to them. So what, what I hear is, as you've, you said something that, it stands out a lot to me. You said raising our standards. Mm-hmm. And what I hear underneath that is you're stepping in much more confidently about what you can do and how you can help somebody. And and almost knowing your worth now, having done this for a little while, can can start to maintain some posturing as you describe what you do, what it's worth, how it helps, the ROI, the impact. Is that, that an accurate statement? I think it is. I think the real inflection point for that phrasing and for us moving to moving away from the the lowest price program and really layering on something that is a lot higher value and a lot higher price was reading the the, the Dan Sullivan Ben Hardy book 10x is easier than 2x that was a this idea was a direct reflection of the ideas that came out of that book of nice. don't don't degrade, degrade's the wrong word. Don't devalue your service. Instead, figure out a way to provide maximal value and charge for it. Yeah. And so that's what we're doing. Yeah, it's cool to hold that line too. Uh, having, having gone through it on my side with coaching, 
and with this business and with a few others, there was always this rhetoric that if you do that, you're leaving people behind. And it sounds like the, just the way that you contextualize that, that, that is a struggle for me. It sounds like it is also for you. And for sure. In many ways, I find that the expansion, the the pathway of of really getting to to more high ticket and this this letting go has a lot more to do with how we feel about ourselves and our our service than it does about who we help. What what comes up when I say that to you? I think that's true in part. I think that Joya is far more confident in what she does than she was when she hung out her own shingle nearly six years ago now. And how could she not be, right? She's learned a lot. She has seen that people value what she does and are willing to pay for it. So her confidence has grown, and I like to think that I imbue her with confidence because I see what she does, and sometimes we can't know how valuable what we're delivering is when we're processing it only with our own brain. Yeah, agreed. When you have someone you love who looks and looks at you and, and listens to you deliver a service and says, you just have no idea how how valuable that was. You don't know how few people could articulate what you just said while showing the empathy you show while genuinely caring about the result in a way that you did. Your, your skill set is so unusual and valuable. I think that's helped raise her confidence as well. Mm-hmm. So that's one part of it. The other part of it, and I'm, I'm curious to hear your experience in coaching as well. What we've learned, and this is certainly not true across the board, but it does exist. People who choose to pay as little as they possibly can for your service tend to value it a little less and a small subset of those people will push and pull and claw to get more value for the lesser amount of money they paid than the offer actually included and so while it does have to do with joy's confidence in the service it it also does have to do with i don't know that it's worth the time and stress and strain to deliver this service to people who don't, who kind of don't value it and are trying to, if I could be a little unkind here, trying to weasel their way into more than they, than they bought. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's fairly common in, in a business practice anyway. Uh, and I, I can appreciate the, the lawyer in you speaks so strongly, so well, in your defensibility. It's so good. Uh, you know, in, in most experiences that I've had as a consumer, I find that to be true as well. That if, if I'm minimally invested, and that certainly has relativity included in, in it, 
I'm likely to look for ways to extract as much as possible for a minimal investment. And on the other side, I have learned that if I am fully invested or we'll, we'll use the anterior and say maximally invested, like I'm, I'm going all in, then the place that I rest is how do I show up to this better? Not what do you do? What do I do? Because now that I've thrown my skin in the game, I'm going to make it work. So to me, it's an energetic exchange that's broken. If, if I'm not putting much energy in, I'm expecting someone else to come to the table and fill that gap. If it's a 50-50, let's say, and I'm only putting in 20, then my expectation is, well, the only way this becomes 100 is if they fill the extra 30. But on the other side, if, if I put in energetically a lot more, that person doesn't have to meet me nearly as, as hard. And if someone comes 50 and I go 70, we now have a surplus. And that's sort of the way I look at the model, mathematically. That makes a great deal of sense to me. And the only thing I would add to that is I feel like, because I've, I've had similar experiences as a consumer. If I'm going in 70, then I'm often going to get 70 back. Yeah. yeah. So that me giving energy ends up getting more, more value to me too. And so you and I know each other through, through masterminds. And we're both members of GoBundance, which is not an inexpensive community to to enter into. I mean, some of the guys in there, it's a rounding error, but for at least for me, it's a, a material amount of money every year to to join and remain. And my response to that is not gimme, 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 gimme. It's how can I pour in? How can I add value to others? How can I participate so fully how can i bring 70 80 90% energy so that we can all just wring the marrow out of this and you know pour into each other i didn't really have a good way to end that paragraph but i think you know what i mean <laughs> yeah I, i'm i'm fully on board and anytime there's a, a chance to invest the the question that i'd like to ask is i'm i'm putting up some kind of capital what is my responsibility after the capital? Because the capital is only only one piece of the equation. It doesn't matter what you're investing in. There's there's often a lot more that goes into it than that. Uh, if if you're building this business up, yeah, the capital matters. There's also a lot of other things that go into the calculus of of success. Uh, where do you find yourself? I don't want to use the word stuck because it sounds like things are growing. Where do you find? Where does Dave? find himself stretched or where do you find your your like growth plate right now where there's friction or or breaks in confidence or pauses in your your pursuit it has almost nothing to do with business to be honest with you it's this is challenging in a in a wonderful way and i'm enjoying myself and i'm looking forward to a few weeks from now when things maybe normalize a little bit where I find myself, I don't know if stuck is quite the right word, but certainly stretched, may not be strong enough, is in, is in parenting. I, I alluded to it earlier. My 12-year-old daughter 
has high functioning autism spectrum disorder, and that presents itself chiefly as responding to disappointment with cruelty. Uh, my 10-year-old son, who's the, who's the athlete, has ADHD and intermittent explosive disorder. And he's matured out of a lot of issues around that, but it's still there. And so there are a lot of atypical kid behaviors in my house. And I've, I don't think I appreciated how hard that was for joy. I knew it. I heard about it. But when I was practicing law, I, I didn't see it. I wasn't there as much as on the weekends. But now it's, I'm the guy. I'm the, I'm the front line for parenting. And while that's wonderful, in many ways, I'm, I'm, they can just be mean, right? And it's loud. It's, it's a, it's a real challenge. And it's something I had not dealt with for much of my parenting life. And where I'm stuck is I, I don't respond to that with as much grace as I want to have. Mm. I, I get frustrated too easily. I resort to yelling at them too quickly when I know intellectually that a gentler hand that extending the gap between stimulus and response, as I tell my kids they should do, would do better for them and do better for the family and do better for, for my own peace of mind. And I feel like that's an area where I'm improving, especially as I've become more conscious of that. But I still see, I'll go back to another uh, Ben Hardy book, the, I, I'm, I'm seeing the gap more than I'm appreciating the gain in that. So if there's one area of life where I really feel like I could use some help, and I'm, I'm telling everybody in my circle this over, over the last weeks and months, like I, I, need to do, I need to do better. So help me, Aaron. Hmm. It's, it's interesting because I, I think the demeanor that you have is so gentle that we all have complexities. So what is interesting about it is, is that this is probably the most proximal space, the closest space where someone gets that kind of reaction. Um, something that, that occurred to me, it came up, uh, I, f I forget where in the last three months, but someone said, you know, the, the space that we share with partners where we can be angry, we can be frustrated, or we can display these, um, less than favorable behaviors is actually yeah. a sign that someone feels safe because a kid wouldn't get angry if they, if they don't feel safe enough to get angry. And, and I think that put a, a really interesting spin on things for me where I can look back at my childhood and, and even current experiences where some of those lessons were, were very, very true to feel safe enough to be raw and open and human and um, less than perfect. Is, is the expectation you have of yourself reasonable? Oh, what a good question to ask a recovering perfectionist. <laughs> 
It depends. Aaron, <laughs> so, and, uh, the expectation, an expectation to respond with grace and an extended gap between stimulus and response a hundred percent of the time would be unreasonable. And I probably, there's a, there's a sliver of me that does expect that and would beat myself up no matter how frequently or, or infrequently I, I responded in a different way. No doubt. The, the expectation to materially increase the percentage of times that I respond properly, I don't think that's unreasonable. Okay. That's fair. The Here's a framework that has helped me a lot when I'm looking at improvement and the genesis of that improvement. We'll simplify it down to a, a set of two options so that the, the gray middle of it depends has a hard time fitting. On one side, we've got lack. On the other side, we've got love. So the language of lack is often things like need. I have to. I must. Lack is also generated out of scarcity. It's this desire to cover a hole or patch up something that was done incorrectly. Love, on the other hand, is built on abundance and want. We use words like I want, I'm excited for, I can't wait to experience, etc. And that is often painted as almost non-necessities that fill our lives with joy. Which do you feel yourself pulled in more frequently when it comes to your improvement? Not the, not the stimulus or the reaction, but your improvement. Oh, almost certainly lack. Okay. Almost certainly. Part of it is, and, and this welled up in me even as you were talking about it, I think, how can I learn to love poor behavior by my children? Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean I can't. It doesn't mean that I can't move from lack to love. I just, I struggle with how to articulate what I'm moving toward in that. Although maybe, tell me if, tell me if this makes sense. Maybe it's not that I'm moving toward that particular stimulus and response. Maybe that is only a means of moving toward an improved relationship with my kids. Well, I'll, I'll, I'm going to go around to the back side of the house and try to enter from a window. So the question was, how can I learn to love poor behavior in my children? And there are plenty of experts in child development and, and brain psychology that can serve from the lens of the kid. What I hear when I hear that question is, how can I learn to love poor behavior in myself? What a reframe to give a recovering perfectionist. Is it important to love the behavior? I think without loving our misdeeds and our, our complexities, it's very hard to extend that to someone else. That's fair. That's fair. I don't think we have enough left in the podcast for the 45 minutes it's going to take me to uh, sort of 
let that sink in and articulate a response. I, I appreciate that. I'm gonna I'm gonna mull that over. That's helpful. Thank you. One of the things that has been hardest through my journey has been all the shadow work that's dug up the hardship, the failures, the the behaviors that I don't like in myself or the the elements of myself that paint a, another image of me, especially when taken at at like face value or or just in with with no context. Right. I, I have noticed though that with Emerson, who's really young, uh 19 months, give or take, mm-hmm. the the things that are upsetting largely have to do with how I'm feeling, not what he's experiencing. And I think even in coaching, one of the the skills that that has been most transformative in coaching is, can I just hold space? Can I allow whatever someone is experiencing to go in this bucket and not, not spill on me? The hardest part of that has been allowing myself to hold my own space. And if if I think back to the way you describe law and some of the hard elements of I have to take a case that I don't align with emotionally or or spiritually or or even physically based on the events that happened, I could see a, a, a giant bottleneck of like this, I don't I don't comply with this. I don't comply with this, but I have to. And if that created a, a bounce effect to the other side, the same language, right? The perfection of like, I don't align with this, I don't align with this, but I have to. It would almost create a, the, the opposite, the yin to the yang would be, well, I don't align with this and I don't ever have to anymore. I have so much freedom that I, I don't want to align with this, right? That's the perfectionist. And a perfectionist typically is rooted in a very binary equation. It's perfect or it's not. And often that defeats any kind of progressive mentality because it's it's looped in, it's a zero or it's a one. Maybe there's a chance to say, how do I make the scale more than just zero to one? And, and can I look at where I am and observe what I want to work on to use love versus lack again? Here are the things that I want to work on and label them in a way that allows you to practice intentionally. And by labeling some actions, then your attention goes there, your focus goes there, but it would it would almost extend the zero to one to like, let's go zero to 10. And let's say you're at a two. Okay, well, what does three look like? And here are the, the three things that I want to work on. I'm excited to work on to go from two to three. And then here's the next scale, and here's the next scale, and here's the next scale. And obviously, when you get to 10, you just bump the scale back. <laughs> but I wonder if that might set you free a little bit to focus on, again, how can I love my own poor behavior and and understand it and, and know where it comes from rather than just vilify it and almost subject myself to a, an amount of shame and guilt? Because that's that's a part of the process for us when we do this is we just shame and guilt ourselves so much that we, we pull back in a lack. I love the idea of, and, and maybe I, maybe I like the language more than than calling it love, understanding, 
of poor behavior. If, if we can set it in, and I'll create a binary where maybe I don't need to, but you have vilifying on one side and understanding on the other. Beautiful. And, move, and moving toward understanding, I think, is, is massively important. I really appreciate that. And then creating a scale with more notches on it. You know how all scales have notches. That sentence totally made sense. Uh, so that we can, so that we can see more progress. I, I really, I really appreciate that. I, I want to check in with one, with you on one sort of more tactical thing, because you holding space as a coach, I think has a lot of similarities here. Do you find that when you are more regularly practicing, call it self-care, call it stress management, you are able to better hold space? Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. Yeah, I've, I've found similar things and I'm trying to be more intentional. I am being more intentional about that. And I can tell day, day to day when I'm interacting with my kids, there's a difference between the days when I lifted weights and when I didn't, mm. or when I you know, did brain tap, which was a guided meditation on steroids, uh, or, or didn't. Uh, so it's, it would behoove me to ramp up those efforts to get from whatever number out of 10 I am to the, to the next number closer to 10. Dude, I, I love that. You know, what also occurs to me is despite a, a rather sophisticated analytical side of your brain, you are probably, based on the interactions I've had in this conversation, incredibly in touch with other people's feelings and emotions. Would you say that's true? I think that's largely true, yes. One of the, the most difficult experiences I had, especially early on coaching, is I would jump on a call and within somewhere between three and seven minutes, I would start to exhibit an emotion without understanding that it wasn't mine. Hmm. So I would get really frustrated and be like, why, why, why am I frustrated? Why, why am I feeling anxious? Like, I, like out of nowhere, I would jump on the call. Hey, I'm excited to dig in. And within a couple minutes here, I'm like almost out of my chair experiencing a different state than I was prior to entering the call. And it took me a long time to be able to one, recognize what was happening and two, like develop the skill for it. But this, this might be a, a helpful tool. And it, it definitely has helped with Emerson. If, if I ask the question, is this my emotion or is this theirs? Most of the time I was duplicating their experience. And I think I struggled because the, experience was so visceral for me, call it empathy, call it whatever. But I really yeah. struggled with the the line of divide between this being mine or this being yours. Is there... You're aware of the gap and you're working on extending it. And even as you think about the idea of raising the standard in the business, I can tell that you're also interested in raising your personal standard. That's what Absolutely. I hear the way you describe the way you want to show up for uh, those are the twins, yes? Uh, no, the, the my 12-year-old has 
uh, autism spectrum disorder. My twin son has uh, the ADHD and intermittent explosive disorder. But his his twin sister is uh, more neurotypical, although you know she's ten years old, so she has her own <laughs> things going on, as we all do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She just doesn't have a diagnosis. Gotcha. So it's the boys. Um. Okay. Do you find yourself taking on in your own paternal way their state and their emotions and wearing it? Absolutely. Absolutely. The the framework for this that I love and am moving toward implementing more frequently, albeit imperfectly, is be an emotional thermostat and not an emotional thermometer. Mm, nice. So thermometer matches, it just tells you what temperature it is. And so if they are running at 150 degrees, then I get up to 150 degrees because I'm just the thermometer. The thermostat sets the temperature and it brings all the air around it down to whatever temperature it is. Mm -hmm. And when I act while still setting boundaries as an emotional thermostat, my house operates better. I operate better internally. And that's that's where I need to get more frequently. So what, outside of the responsibilities that you carry, what things will perpetuate and help you grow your skill as a thermostat and let the thermometer version of you slowly dwindle and become atrophied? I think these self-care stress management practices are are a great deal of it. I think they're wonderful tools to put me in a better emotional state so that I can be a more level-headed thermostat. I think conversations like these are immensely helpful. That's why I keep having them in you know with you with my guys in my GoPod with Joya frequently with, I was talking about this with my mom the other, the other week. Part of that is just processing emotions and getting new perspectives and learning new skills from a bunch of uh, diverse thinkers. And part of that, frankly, is accountability mm-hmm. because there is, there's a part of me, I'm, I'm a high achiever and I don't want to disappoint people. And if I know a lot of people that I know, like trust and respect are going to ask me, Dave, how's parenting going? How how you doing being an emotional thermostat? The achiever in me wants to be able to report to those people, man, I was a three and now I'm a four and a half. And I'm, I'm on my way to seven, on the way to 10, on the way to making that 10 my new three. And so I think all of those things in concert are going to keep me moving up and to the right as far as this aspect of parenting goes. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, the way the way that we connected a couple things here, I, I I think you were on a really special path, meaning that you've isolated the behavior that really matters to you. Is 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 thermostat the, the visual that you get when you think of emotions? I don't know that I think of emotions visually all that often, to be honest with you. 
it's certainly when I'm thinking about how I respond to my children, that's the visual I go to. Okay. And is, is like warm red bad and cool blue good? Not as such, because if we get too cool, that's not emotionally healthy either, right? Mm -hmm. If we're getting down toward freezing, then there's no emotional connection. That's that's a parent just walking away and shutting out their child. And that's not at all the relationship I want to have with my kids. I don't think it's the relationship my children want to have with me. And so I, I think of it more like, so, so we've got a, a smart thermostat at home, right? And so as you turn the dial up, it goes from orange to red. You turn it down, it goes from orange to, to blue. I want to, I want to live in San Diego, baby. <laughs> I want, I want a nice 68 to 72, you know, kind of a warm orange every day. So living in that, living in that middle where we are treating one another with empathy and kindness and mutual vulnerability, that's, that's the visual is my, is my nest thermostat set to 68 degrees or whatever. Yeah. I love a good Nest thermostat. Uh, so an interesting, interesting connection to to maybe give you some tools that perpetuate beyond this dialogue. In in the pathway to you getting better at expanding your your thermostat and and really understanding what's going on. A visual might be a fantastic aid. And almost what I'm hearing is that there's there's a range, like a like a sphere from the origin, from the dead center, and too far on either direction creates problems or creates a, a way of showing up that isn't ideal. And if that's true, then you sort of have a plus or minus. I can go up to, down to, but those are different emotions. But as long as those are categorized very similarly, cold is bad, warm is bad, it's going to probably feel really boxy and really snug in there because you've got a fence on either side. Hmm. And what may expand, like, hey, I actually have some room here to to explore, is to, to push those things out a little wider and experience and, and maybe even write out like, what does it look like if you're one notch out? What does it look like if you're one degree minus versus one degree cool? And and label those so that you you now have a a scale to reflect on. What what ultimately I believe is that you we don't learn from experience. Unfortunately, we learn from the reflection on experience, and the the labeling might help you reflect on the experience better. Where was I when I was hot today? Was I if the if the neutral is sixty eight, was I at sixty five, and was I cold? Or was I at 68? Because if it's just I'm off by three, it almost leaves you with two very, very different labels. And it could be very difficult to discern like, well, did I show up not emotionally connected? Or did I show up like way too uh, emotionally charged? And if those two get conflated, it would make sense to 
try to dial everything back because two very distinct emotional calibrations are being attributed to the same failure. So we're back to what we're identifying as an area where my thinking could be refined again, where maybe I'm creating too much of a binary and I need to give myself more degrees, if you'll pardon the pun, of <laughs> measurement. Thank you. Uh, so that I can, you know, there's there's grace in saying 68's ideal. I was 65. I was a little cooler than I'd want to be. But that's still within the range of acceptable relationship building. I just want to make sure I'm doing what I can to not get down below 55, which is not an arbitrary choice because that's the temperature at which a man with a shaved head, at least my shaved head, has to put on a head. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah. The the binary catches us in. Uh, it catches up to us where a potentially progressive option is labeled as inconsistent, incompatible, wrong, poor, etc. And and maybe by by almost expanding to where you have plus or minus on either side, you now have a you have now have three dimensions to measure. You have what temperature was I on and how far from the origin am I? which is a a great could be a great skill builder for can I know where I am and reflect on that experience to try to moderate the temperature better right that makes a that makes a great deal of sense and it's only in the reflection that we can really discern whether what we might otherwise have labeled an aberration something unacceptable is actually moving us in a growth pattern yes yeah, yeah. It, it, and and part of the the reason I, I particularly feel inclined to share this is that if you show up too hot too emotionally charged but it's very confused to emotionally numb and you give them the same like well I'm three degrees away from where I want to go it'd be very hard to know what to change it'd be very difficult to say okay well I need to get less emotionally rigid or I need to get less charged, like it would just make for a very difficult reflection versus a more expansive uh, like XY axis that allows you to say, okay, where where on the line am I? And how do I get back to my my ideal temperature? Yes. I'm I'm looking forward to listening back to this. I've not been hmm. actively taking notes because I just wanted to be wanted to be totally present. I'm going to I'm going to jot some things down after after we record. But I want to I want to sit with this. I want to refine this framework of really on a on a nightly basis thinking about what was my temperature in interacting with with the people that I love and what was my temperature in responding to behavior from my kids that was not what necessarily what I was looking for, whether they were unkind to me or each other or just, you know, singing Taylor Swift too loudly again. <laughs> because over time, having that refined, reflecting daily on that behavior is going to move me in a very helpful direction. It's interesting to think about 
just because of where we've gone. But it almost sounds like you're merging a thermometer with the thermostat. The thermostat controls the temperature plus or minus, but the thermometer really tells you where you are. Right. I've got to, I've got to apply the thermometer to my own emotions to understand it so that I can be a better thermostat. Mm, that's, a, that's a great statement. You dropped a lot of interesting wisdom here too around you know, the, the things that are, are keeping you healthy, this, the self-care stress management, your conversations, your accountability. Uh, I, I also know that in running a business, in leading a family, you've got a lot going on, but you're, it sounds like you're doing an amazing job. And I, I think there's a lot of wisdom learned through the lens of both sides of the brain, through the lens of uh, where you want the business to go and your vision of Nourish about raising your standards. Like, there's a lot of really good extraction points from today's talk for not you, which I know is part of your mission. Absolutely. I'm, I'm hopeful that, that people can learn something from this conversation. I showed up here because I, I know and like and respect you so much. So I certainly want to bring value to, to your podcast. And I'm, I'm so excited for everything that you're doing and growing this show, but also in your coaching business and certainly everybody listening i i want i want good things for for them as well because the more good that you and i can do the better the world gets and and that can only mean good things for for us too it's a win 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 amen to that so for those listening that are are really committed to their health who are really eager to find not just a medical solution to their problems, but someone that thinks bigger and can help them reach the next tier, where can they learn about Nourish? Nourishhousecalls.com. We're easy to find. If you Google Nourish House Calls, we are the, we're the number one result, which is lovely. Uh, you'll get to, to meet Joya to learn more about what we do. If you're, a, if you're a social media person, I'm not supremely active, but if you look up Nourish House Calls on Facebook or Instagram, you can see a, a lot of Joya given a lot of uh, good free general knowledge. Uh, I will I will second that. I got to spend a, a really long evening with both Dave and Joya. And as soon as you dig in with either of them about anything they're passionate about, namely Nourish right now, there's so much wisdom. Uh, I cannot recommend them enough. Uh, I can certainly see Dave's statement about Joya's genius being so, so accurate for someone that wasn't even in her element doing her thing. There was so much knowledge and so much care and so much wisdom. So this is a dynamic duo. If if health is a priority for you this year, if you're already investing but haven't found the... If you haven't found your leader, if you haven't found the person to to really team up with and tag team for your, your next level of health, I would highly recommend you check them out. They've got a new website that has just launched uh, by the time this show airs. And I encourage you to reach out to Dave uh, or to Joya if that's something that you're pursuing this year. Dave. Yep. And, and if somebody wants to wants to reach me personally, it's it's easy. It's Dave at nourishhousecalls.com. I was just going to ask, right? how can they reach you? Uh, okay. Last question before we we wrap this up. Someone is going through the the moment of choice where they're looking at a possible career outside of the one they know, and they're like, "Dang, Dave did it, but I, I'm not. I'm not Dave. I, I I don't know that I can do this." How would you speak to them? 
don't think of it as leaving forever. Do your homework, figure out what you have saved, look at the worst case scenario if you left for, let's say you've got six months of savings, which is roughly what I had when I left the law. Ask yourself, what could I do for this business, for this new enterprise, whatever you're going into? What could I do for that if I had a six-month sabbatical, three-month sabbatical, whatever it is? And if that's a satisfying answer to you, if that's an exciting answer to you, also ask yourself, what's the worst-case scenario? Could I go get my job back? The answer to that is probably yes. Could I go get another job in the same field of expertise? The answer to that is probably yes. So the downside is you just go back to doing what you were doing before. But if you get satisfying answers to those questions, take the leap. There's the, the downside of it is so small compared to what you could achieve if you follow through with the thing you really want to do. So go do it. I don't know that there's a better way to end. Dave, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Aaron. Always a pleasure. Make sure uh, you listen to Dave and get out of your own way. Take the leap. Uh, if we can help in any way, let us know. We've got some retreats coming up. We've got some coaching slots that'll open up, uh, not in January, but in February. And at the very least, we appreciate a review, a five-star rating on any platform that you're listening to. That means a lot to us. But if not, just remember to get out of your own way. We'll see you on the next one.